according to Luke 17, part 3, spoken by Pastor Sunita Ponto. As you know, we are continuing in the study of Luke, and today we will be looking at how to be prepared for Christ's second coming. So if you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 37. You can follow along behind me or um, in your app or in your Bibles. Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 37. And the word of God reads as follows. Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running off after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that day, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord, they asked. He replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. This is the word of God. Christmas and my birthday are my two favorite holidays. And they always have been. And when I was a child, Christmas was so exciting to me. I think my parents did a good job of teaching me and my brother to be generous, but they also spoiled us at Christmas. And they had lots of siblings, so I had aunts and uncles and cousins, and they participated, and it was just, I mean, it was a lot. And so Christmas was exciting to us. Christmas was also the time when we would travel from New Jersey down to North Carolina. And this was the time I got to be with my cousins. And so it was fun. And we would all stay together in the same house. And um, yeah, it was crazy. Um, And so my aunt still lives there now. And when we were younger, oh, there we are. (laughs) So when we were younger, um, we would be in my aunt's house. And my, my aunt and uncle stayed in one bedroom. And my parents stayed in another bedroom. And then me and my brother and all my cousins stayed in the other bedroom, and then there'd be people sleeping on the couch, and it was just, it was just lots of fun. And Christmas Eve was the most exciting time for me. Uh, we would try to stay up as long as possible, and we would try to make excuses to stay up longer. You know, can we leave cookies for Santa? 
You know, can we leave milk out? Um, will he know where to go? Do we need to call him? You know, we, we really were trying to, to trying to stay up. And we would say, no, we're not tired yet. And there was way too much excitement inside of us to sleep. And when we were finally forced to go to bed, we would lay in bed and we would talk and we would wonder what Santa would bring us. And then we would get so anxious that we would um, open the door. It happened every year. One of us would be brave enough to open the door and kind of like walk out and peek into the kitchen. And we would say, did Santa come yet? And our parents would say, no, Santa does not come when kids are awake. Nor does he come if you annoy adults. <laughs> so go back to bed. And we would eventually drift off to sleep, but only for a few hours, because as soon as the sun rose, we were up and out of the bedroom, running into the living room, um, so excited to see our presents. And we would, um, you know, we would, we would laugh and, and talk and be so excited that we would wake everybody else up in the house. And I cherish that. I think about that. And even now, as I prepare to drive down to North Carolina again this year, even though the Santa does not come to adults, um, it's exciting to see the same scene kind of played out all over again with a new generation, with my cousin's kids. And so that's really exciting to me. But as I've gotten older, I've also become really excited about the true meaning of Christmas, right? This is another side of, another type of excitement overtakes me. It's the excitement of the Advent hope, the promise of Jesus Christ. And it reminds me when the world is challenging and it seems crazy to me that there is still hope because there is still a Savior. Amen? Amen. And he's a reminder that the impossible is possible. And he's a reminder that God fulfills promises, and he's a reminder that God makes his dwelling among the humble. He's a reminder that hope is not empty, and he's a reminder that, as my old church used to say, God may not come when you want him, but he's always on time. It's a reminder that God's kingdom has come. But even as I think about this Advent season, and I hope you all are excited as I am about the coming of Christ, I realize that we don't share the same sort of excitement when we think about the second coming. And I wonder why that is. Why is there so much thrill as we celebrate and anticipate the first coming of Jesus and not the second coming of Jesus? Let me think about it. How many of you felt a little uncomfortable while we were reading the text this morning? But it's about Jesus. It's about the same Jesus. And while according to the Christian calendar, we are moving into uh, the birth of Christ, we know chronologically that Jesus has already come, and we're actually waiting for the second coming of Christ. And so I wonder, why don't we have the same sort of Advent hope uh, for the second coming? And first, I think the reason is because we're a little afraid. Um, there's a lot of fear within us. There's so much uncertainty about what this second coming will look like and where it will take place and when. And the Bible gives us some indication. Jesus talks about it. Paul talks about it. Um, it's in the book of Revelation, right? How many of you are afraid of the book of Revelation? Be honest, right? Because it's scary. Um, but I'll just let you know that God wins, right? God wins in the end. Um, but we're afraid of what will take place. And, and some of you are afraid because maybe you're uncertain of where you stand, 
God, is it really true that all we have to do is believe on your son, Jesus Christ, and live a life of faith, and we will be okay? Is it really all that is to it? Is your grace sufficient? Are your promises true? And some of us are afraid because we know that we haven't given our lives to Christ yet, and yet, if what he says is true, we will be judged when he returns. So there are all these fears. And second, I think that if we're honest with ourselves, we're a little uncomfortable about this second coming Jesus. We're a little uncomfortable with the Jesus who judges. It's like how we try to divide God up between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God, right? The Old Testament God, we don't like him because he's vengeful, right? Um, But it's really the same. And it's the same thing with Jesus, right? We like the nice, warm, feeding, healing, playing with babies Jesus, right? But isn't that the same Jesus? Isn't he the same Jesus who heals us because he refuses to let the brokenness of this world overtake us? And isn't he the same Jesus that vows to bring justice to the oppressed? But we decide that we only want one side of Jesus. But this part of Jesus, the Jesus that judges, is necessary too. Too often we want the kingdom without the judgment that comes with it. And in this text, Jesus reminds us that he is coming. Somebody say amen. 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 And the same way we pray for Christmas and the first coming of Christ, we should be prepared for his second coming. Jesus calls us to be prepared. But why? Why does Jesus want us to be prepared for his second coming? First, Jesus tells us that his arrival will be sudden. His arrival will be sudden. In verses 20 through 21, we see the Pharisees asking when the kingdom of God will come. And Jesus responds to them that the kingdom will not come in signs that people can predict. It will be sudden. He also says later in the text that there's going to be no time to prepare. You'll be going on as, with life as usual, and Christ will come. It says the same thing in 1 Thessalonians. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, his arrival will be sudden. But second, Christ's arrival will be visible to all. It will be visible to all. Jesus tells the disciples in verse 24 that his arrival will come like lightning flashing in the sky. It flashes in one place, but it lights up the entire sky. Now, they seem to be concerned that they might miss Jesus when he comes. Jesus says, you won't miss it. Therefore, don't run after people who say, here he is or there he is. You know, how, may, how often have people tried to predict when Jesus would come? And they've been wrong every time. And they've been wrong because Jesus says, no one knows the day nor the hour. Right? That's what it says in the Bible. Not him and not the angels, only God. So he says, you won't need anyone to direct you there. There'll be no mistaking when he comes back. With his first coming, it was quiet, private, obscure. Only his parents and the shepherds knew about it. But with the second coming, all will see and all will know. It will be visible to all. And Jesus directs us that we should be prepared, thirdly, because his arrival will pronounce judgment. Christ's arrival will pronounce judgment. There's a distinction between those who believe in Christ and those who, not, those who do not, the righteous and the unrighteous. If you look at verses 26 
through 29, you'll see that Jesus uses the examples of Noah and Lot. You remember Noah. God was so upset with the wickedness of his people. The Bible says that the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time, and his heart was deeply troubled. So God decided to send a flood to wipe out humanity, but he saved Noah and Noah's family because Noah was a righteous man and blameless, and he walked faithfully with God. And Lot, Lot is, was Abraham's nephew, and he lived in Sodom, and Sodom and Gomorrah were notorious. Their sin was grievous, the Bible says. The Lord determines to destroy Sodom, and Abraham begs him for mercy. Unfortunately, when the angels of the Lord make their way to Sodom, men from Sodom try to sexually assault those men, and they threaten Lot to make them, uh, release the men out of his home. And Lot refuses. And eventually, God sends down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. Only Lot and his immediate family are saved. Jesus uses these stories to remind the disciples and us that like Noah and Lot, the righteous will be spared when he returns, but the unrighteous will receive judgment. This is what happens on the day of the Lord, the coming of the kingdom, the coming of the Son of Man. These are not just terms for a 24-hour period, but this is for a period of time where there will be multiple events taking place. It begins with the coming of the Lord, and it involves judgment. So by now, most of you are feeling uneasy. Am I correct? Yes. <laughs> and that's okay because Jesus does not just leave us with statements about judgments. If you read the text carefully, you realize that Jesus is giving us an opportunity to be saved from judgment. And so our focus this morning is on the how. It's on the how. How do we prepare ourselves for Christ's second coming? And why should we be excited about it? preparedness, that quality or state of making something ready for use or service or getting ready for some occasion. Jesus is calling us to be prepared for his second coming. And when we are unprepared, it means that there is a sense of unbelief or indifference about the future. Preparedness means that we believe Christ and we believe what he says about himself. And preparation is not a new concept to any of us. If you were ever a Boy Scout or a Girl Scout, you vowed to be prepared a long time ago. I think this is why I tend to be overprepared. Take my purse, for example. It is not big, but it is heavy. And the reason my purse is so heavy, ladies, you know this, is because you never know what you're going to need, right? So if I need a tissue, I have it. If you need lotion, I've got it. If you need hand sanitizer, I've got it. If you want to change your lipstick at any point during the day, I have several options for you. Because you never know, right? Um, but men can be the same way. I believe that Pastor Kevin is the most prepared person I know. He really is. He really is. We were, in, we, we were going to put up a whiteboard in my office, and I said, oh, okay, tomorrow I'll bring a tape measure. He said, no, I've got one in my office. He's got hammers, screwdrivers, gloves, like all kinds of things. Um, and, and we all know it in the office. If you need something, go to Pastor Kevin. 
because you never know, right? So we, we know how to be prepared. Preparation is not a difficult concept for us. What we have to understand is that now it's time to be prepared with our faith, right? It's time to, time to apply that to our faith. So the first way to be prepared for the second coming of Christ is to take hold of the king now. Take hold of the king now. Let's look at verses 20 through 21. Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the, kingdom, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. The Pharisees are asking about the coming of the kingdom of God, and Jesus essentially says, take hold of the king now. See, there's a twofold nature to God's kingdom. There's the realized nature of the kingdom and the unrealized, what we call the already and the not yet. The realized nature came with the birth of Jesus Christ. At his birth, Jesus was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He brought the kingdom with him. And the Pharisees did not realize that one aspect of the kingdom, the beginning of the kingdom, was already in their midst. They were talking to him. So when they ask about when the kingdom would come, Jesus replies, the kingdom is already in your midst. The first aspect of the, the kingdom was already present. Jesus, the king, was already here. He had been teaching, healing, feeding, delivering. This was the kingdom at work. And the tragedy was that the kingdom of God was already in their midst, and they missed it. And to really get to the heart of what, Jesus was say, what the Pharisees were saying, Jesus wants them and us to know that the aspect of the, the future kingdom that we want, in order to get that, we have to take a hold of the kingdom now. We have to take a, a hold of the king right now. This is why Jesus speaks differently to the Pharisees who don't believe in him, who need to grab a hold of the king than he does to the disciples who already believe in him. They need to remain steadfast and prepared for the kingdom. So what does this mean to us? If you do not already have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, now is the time to do so. The urgency with which Jesus speaks applies to you. We don't know when, so choose Christ now. Take a hold of the king now. Don't be like the Pharisees who saw Jesus' hand at work all around them and refused to believe. Jesus is at work around you, including the fact that you are here today listening to this sermon. Jesus is still healing people. Jesus is still transforming lives from sadness to joy. Jesus is still giving people dignity and hope because of the love that he has for us. I think about earlier this week when this man tried to set off an explosive in the subway, and I thank God that he didn't get it right. You know, I thank God that a few people were injured, but they'll be okay. And personally, I thank God because I have a lot of friends who travel that route every day, and they were not hurt. So I thank God that he's still at work, still protecting people. Amen? Amen. Amen. So take a hold of king right now. You can't have the kingdom 
without the king. Taking hold of the king means that you accept that you're a sinner, that there are some things that you've done against God's will, that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, even if you don't know all the details of it yet, that he died on your behalf, that you accept the gift of forgiveness that he offers, and that you confess him as Savior and you will make him Lord of your life. And if you haven't done so before and you want to do so today, I really encourage you to meet one of the pastors at the next table after service and let us pray with you. But take hold of the king now. So now Christ's conversation focuses on the disciples. Notice that there's more than one audience here. He had been talking to the Pharisees, but now he's going to talk to the disciples. And now he speaks to people who already believe in him, who've already taken hold of him. And he says, once you've taken hold of the king, second, you must leave everything behind. Leave everything behind. Let's look at verses 30 through 33. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. We've heard Jesus say things like this before. We cannot be divided. Not that you will have the time, but Christ's point is that we cannot look back. Once we have decided to follow Christ, we go all the way with it. And he warns us against our desire to want to constantly go back to our old life. Remember, we are new in Christ. And so many of us spend our lives looking backward. But your new life will cost you your old life. Jesus explicitly says, remember Lot's wife. He says that because when the angel saved Lot and his family, including his wife, the angel specifically told them, flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere. But Lot's wife did. She looked back and she became a pillar of salt. She couldn't let go of what she had left behind. Her heart was still committed to Sodom in some way. Earlier in Luke, Jesus warns us, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. The Lord's return will reveal people's hearts and what they truly love. People who turn back demonstrate where their hearts are. We can't be divided. We have to be all in with Jesus. And so Christ cautions us to leave everything behind. If we want to be prepared when he returns, leave everything behind. And third, he says, we are to work for God. We are to work for God. Let's look at verses 26 through 29. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lord, excuse me, but the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Jesus uses the Noah and the Lot stories to remind us that people were eating and drinking and marrying and buying and selling and planting and building when God's judgment came down. 
Now, these things are not inherently wrong. All of these things are a part of life. But Jesus also wants to know that even in the midst of these things, we need to be doing them with a heart and a mind for Christ. During the times of Noah and Lot, people were unsuspecting and unprepared for the judgment that came upon them, not because they were living their lives, but because God did not factor in their lives. People were living as if it didn't matter. Too many of us live our lives like this right now. But all of our work and all that we do is worship to God. The Bible says, in him we live and move and have our being. We devote all of ourselves and all that we do, no matter how insignificant it may seem, to the glory of God. I don't like cleaning floors. I don't like anything about cleaning floors. Mopping, sweeping, vacuuming, I don't like it at all. Um, But a few years ago, I read a blog post by a woman who just described how she uses cleaning time to reflect on God's goodness and to be thankful. She said that as she washes dishes, she thanks God for the food she was able to provide for her family, and she remembers those people who are less fortunate. She said as she puts the toys away, she thanks God for the health and safety of her children. As she does laundry, she thanks God for the clothes. And, and I, I have to tell you, I had to adopt that practice myself because I really dislike doing floors. And so when I have to do floor work, I thank God that I have a home to clean. I thank God that I have a place to stay. I thank God that even though I'd like to hire somebody to do this, I'm physically able to do it myself. I thank God for that. I think of my family members who had to clean other people's homes. And I think of my ancestors who had to clean the homes of people who wouldn't even let them in the front door. I thank God for their endurance. Okay, so, so even in cleaning floors, we do it unto God. Right? It's about living this life where we're constantly thinking about God and where we're living a life of preparedness. We're inviting God even into the mundane of our lives. Maybe you think your life is dull or ordinary. Your job seems pointless. But thank God you have a job. There are days when I feel like, oh, my life is so routine. And then I realize I thank God that sometimes no news is good news. That means there's no drama. That means that nobody's calling with something, with a problem. Even in the ordinary, we invite God in. That we prepare our hearts, even now for his second coming, by working for God, even in the mundane of our lives. And finally, God invites us to take someone with you. Take someone with you. Look at verses 34 and 35. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. If you remember the Left Behind series from a few years ago, you might remember something like this. Left Behind was a series of books and later a movie that dealt with the beginning of Christ's second coming. And in it, Jesus raptures or takes up his church. Life is going on as usual when suddenly half the people are gone, right? People on the plane, half are gone. 
People in the stores, the half are gone. And, and left behind goes on to deal with what happens to the people who are left behind. The turmoil, the evil, and the unrest. And at first, people didn't understand what happened, but there had been some people who had been around Christianity, and they knew what had happened. And, and sadly, many who thought they should have been taken were not. And what's troubling about the movie and its dramatization, as well as the truth that Jesus provides us, is that the prepared and the unprepared live side by side. Do you realize that in the text? The prepared and the unprepared slept next to each other in the same bed. The prepared and the unprepared worked alongside one another. They were in close relationship, going about life as usual when judgment comes. Think about the people in your life, your husband, your wife, your coworker, your good friend, your sibling. The humble reality is that no matter how close people may be, your eternal destiny may not be the same. And if this troubles you, that you could be taken up with Christ and other people left behind, it should. But there is an opportunity here. Take someone with you. This is what it means to be a disciple of Christ. This is the Great Commission. You have an opportunity now to help prepare others. You have the opportunity now to share Jesus with the people in your life. We can't assume anything about anyone. The people in the text were outwardly just alike. They were sleeping. They were working. But inwardly, there was a difference. So take someone with you. Make it your mission to ensure that the people around you go with you. Jesus is giving us an opportunity now. He wants us all to be prepared. And remember what the text teaches. We can't assume that we or they have more time. We never know when Christ will return. And we can't get caught up in the liberalism of today that says that we can't tell people what to do or, or that each person is entitled to his or her own opinion or way of life. We have information and we have access to a Savior that can change people's lives, and they need to know that. They need to know that the Bible says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And we can't allow our fears of rejection or not knowing what to say override our faith. At the very least, we have to invite them to church. Next Sunday is Christmas Eve. Invite someone with you. It's a perfect opportunity because people tend to be more open during the holidays. Invite someone with you next week. And let that feeling you felt of regret of other people being left behind fuel you. Take someone with you. As we celebrate this Advent season and prepare for Christ's first coming, don't forget about the second coming, but don't be intimidated by it. Be prepared. It's exactly what we pray for when we say, thy kingdom come. Christ's second coming, just like his first, is a call for hope and celebration. For the unbeliever, this is your opportunity to take hold of the king now. For believers, rather than live in fear, we as God's disciples can live a life of hope. The promise of God's kingdom will come, 
And yes, judgment will be a part of it, but the most important part is that Christ's full authority will be on display for all to see. Christ will come in all his glory. Thy kingdom come. The kingdom of God is where Christ rules, and the kingdom of God is where we belong. We hope with excitement for Christ to come because in Christ's presence, there is fullness of joy forevermore. We hope because one day in his courts are better than thousands elsewhere. We hope in the promise of Christ's return because we know that this world is not our home. And we hope because we know that God has prepared a wonderful place for us where he will wipe every tear and there will be no more death and no more mourning or or crying or pain. We hope because we long for a time when justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. We hope because when God comes, he will make all things new. We hope because we long for God's glory to be made manifest in all the earth. We hope because we want God's kingdom to come. Let us pray.